Hi, Katie Harper here. I'm happy to support the Green Majority because it's the conversation we need to be having. You should too. If you enjoy the program and would like to help support us get our message out there as far and wide as we possibly can, like Katie there, you can do it at patron.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Green Majority for as little as a dollar a month. Please enjoy the show. Welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful community radio partners all the way across the country and now into the United States as well, or on our podcast, and finally, and most recently, and and very appreciatively, on Rabble.ca as well, all great places to listen to the show. We've got a wonderful show for you today, and uh, we've been having a lot of fun. Uh, taking people down a peg recently. There's a lot of nonsense out there in the mainstream media and, uh, and a lot of people that have very large megaphones that uh, occasionally, if not almost always, don't deserve them. So I'm going to be uh, doing that again today because I've been enjoying it and apparently the audience has been enjoying it. So stay tuned in the second half where I'm going to take a little bit of a swipe at our good friend Kevin O'Leary. Uh, but before that, we have a number of other news items. So I'm going to preview a few of them very quickly. And, uh, and then we're going to go to M.A. Ma, who's going to talk to us about uh, one of the top news stories of the week, which is, of course, the First Minister's uh, climate agreement. So we'll get to that in just a minute. As a quick preview of some of the stuff coming up later in the show before we get to that, we'll be talking a little bit about Flint, uh, the Flint uh, water crisis that is ongoing and an as absolute shameful debacle. As I said, we'll be talking a little bit about Kevin O'Leary and his nonsense. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the, clean, the soaring of clean energy. Uh, as well as some in the bonus show and later on in the program, some Arctic waters being opened up to increased industrial exploitation because heaven forbid there be a spot on this planet that is not completely covered with oil wells. Uh, but before we get any further, let me introduce M.A. Ma, who's going to tell us a little bit about the First Minister's Agreement on Climate. M.A. Yes, so it's actually been quite a significant week for uh, Canadian climate politics, if I can put it that way. I'm not sure that the First Minister's meeting that was held yesterday in Vancouver with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau at the helm was really lived up to all they made it out um, to be. But that is for discussion. So that is what we're going to be covering uh, now. Um, but I think before we jump into that, what's important to also recognize is that on March 2nd, that Trudeau met for two hours, I believe, with Indigenous leaders. Um, that meeting was recognized as being significant in that Indigenous leaders had not been brought to the table um, at these Premier's discussions. They were not in fact, in the meeting with the premiers and the PM the following day, but apparently they did work on the declaration that was released at the end of yesterday. However, this meeting with Indigenous leaders was also a bit marred by the fact that there were some criticisms that um, some of the key governance organizations that represent Aboriginal women and also non-status Aboriginal people were not included in these discussions. So that left a bad taste in in some people's uh, mouths in terms of it being, could 
have been a bit more inclusive, um, but it was acknowledged that it was a start at least. And then to the sort of main event where the uh, first ministers and the PM met, this was a major election promise that was put forward by the the uh, Liberals uh, prior to them taking office as the the government that they would meet with the premiers within 90 days of COP21 finishing and and develop Canada's climate strategy or climate platform. Now, what came out of it was the what they're calling the Vancouver Declaration. And to be honest, Darren, I was not particularly blown away by its <laughs> contents. Um, let me just briefly walk everybody through what was in there, which I would say was quite abstract um, and uh, had very little substance in terms of measures and targets. Uh, so basically, they they came up with something that said they were planning planning to plan or discussing to discuss. Uh, you can choose one of the, the two. Um, and in this was basically sort of high-level and general commitments to do things like um, set up a low-carbon economy fund, um, you know, make key investments in, in public transit infrastructure, which, of course, is good, and, of course, uh, uh, green infrastructure and renewable energy, um, and really, in, in fact, from the federal side, fast-track some of the commitments that have already been made. So some of these are not actually new announcements. Um, and then they had this whole discussion, which really was, I'd say, the major item that dominated the dialogue leading up to this forum, which is around national carbon pricing. Would the federal government actually enforce a floor or a minimum sort of standard or price on carbon? And that was apparently what the Liberals were really hoping to get out of this forum as a big win. That did not happen. Um, we know that some of the premiers went in, particularly Brad Wall, who's up for election, I believe, next month, went in with guns blazing in terms of saying that they would not cooperate on that. Um, some of the other premiers were a little bit more low-key in their remarks, but said they didn't feel it was necessary because they already had their own pro- carbon pricing mechanisms. I, I just wanted to jump in on that quickly as well. As I said today, we're, we're going to have a little bit of fun with Kevin O'Leary, but Brad Wall is on my list, by the way. So we'll be coming back to him in a, in a week or two. As, as he should be. Um, <laughs> so what happened in all of this? So basically, they tried to frame this as uh, incremental success around getting everyone on board with carbon pricing. They did not come up with any sort of minimum price. Um, they came up with an expanded definition of carbon pricing, where some people basically suggested that things like carbon sinks should also be included in the definition, which I think is just actually very, very strange because that is a, a different concept altogether. Um, and so basically, they didn't come up with any con- anything concrete. What they did put in place that they said would actually lead to more concrete commitments with the view of coming up with a with a real platform um, by next early next year was these working groups with the feds and the provinces on things like carbon pricing was one of them looking at the transition to renewable energy and a clean economy and you know specific um, strategies for mitigation and adaptation. So they, they task themselves with these working groups to really look at the science and, you know, good practice, et cetera, et cetera. I find it kind of sad that after, you know, the province is actually doing a fair, ba- a fair amount of work, some of them on this, uh, on climate change strategy and all the best practice evidence that has been out in the world for such a very long time that this is actually the starting point. But I suppose it's better than not starting at all. 
Yeah. So and uh, so one of the things, you know, Stefan Hostetter is uh, is absent today, and he's he was absent last week. He was absent last week for a conflict with work. Unfortunately, he couldn't get out of. It, but he's absent this week because our uh, our dear friend and colleague is is actually in Vancouver uh, at the uh, the Globe 2016, uh, which is what's the full title? Uh, the Leadership S- uh, Summit for Sustainable Business. And uh, so he's been uh, prolifically tweeting. You can go and look at some of his tweets. Uh, he's been uh, live tweeting to a great degree. At uh, it's at Stayho under. Underscore, uh, but I'm going to play him. The reason I mentioned him is I'm going to play him for a minute, which be like this would all be super great, and this is so exciting, and it's amazing if it was 20 years ago. Uh, as far as things that we would like to do in in the future, so the the first comment I want to make on it here, and, and maybe we'll go back and, and mention some of the specifics. I just want to use some examples here. Was that? Uh, oh, excuse me, folks. That's uh, that's my phone. We're just going to have to ignore that for a second. Uh, so the the thing as well that we have to keep in mind as well is that. A lot of this talk is very um, conceptual, and it's talking about uh, things that sound sort of good if you don't know anything about what the actual reality is, what the actual targets are. But what we have to understand is that generally when you're making an argument, you want to open with your best argument. And this is something that I don't think that the liberals in particularly, but just the the sort of amorphous, quote unquote, left in general, uh, is very good at, frankly, which is that they always open with this sort of or they tend to have an opening with this sort of moral imperative. And when you read through this, it talks a lot about, you know, we need to increase our ambition and we need to be more responsible. And these are all very just very generally sort of emotional arguments and they're sort of moral responsibility arguments. And I agree with all of those things. All of those things are true. But the thing that you need to open with, especially when you're, you're you need to push for a policy that needs to be an aggressive and, and it challenges the status quo to a large degree and you're going to experience a lot of resistance is that you don't Ask for somebody's hand and ask them to go on a long watch you walk, you punch them in the nose. And when that comes to something like climate policy, what I mean by punching people in the nose is you open with your best argument, which was this is a scientific fact. It has a scientific limit. And the fastest way to tank our economy is to ignore it. And so this isn't just a moral imperative. It's also an economic imperative. And it's a health imperative. The fact that it also is is sort of, uh, you know, we think nice and good and responsible. Those are all true things, too. But when you're putting forward a policy that you know is going to be resisting and you, you know you're going to need to fight with it, you need to open with your strongest facts, the ones that nobody can disagree with. Because what happens when you start with this sort of uh, moral imperative type sounding type stuff is that then you get the conservative come up, whoever it is. It was Harper. And now it's going to be whoever it is. Um, and who's going to say, look, yes, you know, it's really nice if we could all live in a world where we could all do things where that were really nice and happy happy and where everybody got to get along. But I live in the real world and in the real world, we need to make money. And here's what we and you've just handed them on a silver platter, the best way to confuse people and take them off your point. So if I was just, you know, I liked a lot of the language in here and that they're saying a lot of the right things. But Emmy's first point was that it's not specific. It doesn't give us specific targets. It's not good enough. And my addition to that was it's also weak. And it and it starts off on a defensive point of view. And if, and if you're looking at this as just as far as like a policy outline, which is what it was intended, then fine. But we don't live in that world. We live in a world where there are active forces and millions and millions of dollars being invested in preventing this type type of stuff. And you don't ask them for their hand. You punch them in the nose. And that's that's my biggest criticism is that it's it's weak. It's weak. And Stefan's point would be is that it's too late for something this week. Uh, and we need something more binding. Yes, absolutely agree. And the one I think the sort of pinnacle example <laughs> of how it's weak is that in Canada had come out actually quite strongly in favor of keeping global average temperature rise under or at uh, the 1.5 degrees Celsius level in Paris. So this was actually a major turnaround to have our new government come and commit to that 
in, in, in a lot of ways in solidarity to countries that are really on the front lines of climate change and communities. And then when we look at what the first ministers have collectively come out with, there is no indication that they are committed to improving on our suboptimal target that is not in line with climate science and keeping global temperature global temperature at 1.5. Um, and it's it's just really absent. There's no, there's no overriding commitment to actually addressing that in this document in any sort of substantial way. And to me, one of the, the counter arguments that I've heard often is, well, you know, they can't go set targets that, you know, the federal government can't set targets that they can't unilaterally meet. And, you know, it's a negotiation process and they've got to be realistic. In, in to your point, Darren, I think they're missing the time scale approach here in that what they need to do if they're actually serious about staying within the 1.5 framework is that to commit to a target that gets us there and then work backward from that from a scientific perspective and say, okay, we absolutely need to get there for the sake of, of all life on Earth. What plan is going to take us there? Unfortunately, the plan that's going to take us there is not considered to be politically viable in our current context. Well, well yeah, and exactly what does that mean? That just means that challenges uh, the status quo. And so no, now I'm already I'm already hearing my critics. I'm accused of being uh, a little bit over the top sometimes and great. Okay. So, so what would you do? Smart guy? Great. Here's what I would do. Here's what, here's what some strong policy that comes out punching people in the nose looks like. Uh, we have a whole bunch of oil subsidies. Uh, the number goes up and down, cancel them immediately today. That could have been line one in this thing before we're going to go and study some stuff. We're going to go and look at some policy, but before we do that, something that is an absolute no brainer, we have an industry that is its its main output is something that is a direct harm. Yes, it has some benefits, but we have other ways of doing it. So here's what we're going to do. Because we're intellectually honest and we actually believe in capitalism, we're going to let the market decide. What does that look like? Immediately canceling all oil subsidies. I'm not even saying give them to renewables, which I, it was a policy I actually would support, is canceling all oil subsidies and giving all of those billions of dollars. And yes, we're talking about tens of billions, potentially up to $100 billion in Canada alone giving that to renewable energy, I'll even uh, I'll agree to even not go that far immediately cancel all oil subsidies. Because the thing is, is that people here, you know, that claim, well, blah, 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 but this is about our economy, it'll crash jobs, blah, blah, blah. They're full of it. They're full of it. Or they're ignorant. Because what, what the actual reality is, is that renewable energies are better for the economy, it creates more value in the economy, it creates more jobs, more permanent jobs, better jobs. And it also reduces costs all the way across the economy and a bunch of other places because of the things that we pay for, right? So when an oil tanker spills, we've been over this every single week. When a pipeline spills, the public pays for most of it, not the company. When we have a major health crisis, the company, the country pays for it. We pay for it. Those are all hidden costs, right? So it's a big fat lie that oil is better for our economy. It's just not true. And the thing is that really frustrates me about Justin Trudeau and the reason why, you know, people be like, oh, come on, he's nice, blah, blah, gives. Yeah, okay, well, he's, he's not doing a good job. And the reason he's not doing a good job is because the facts are on his side to have a much stronger position. And I know that he knows that because I know the people that he's getting advice from and those people do know what's going on and he's voluntarily walking it back. And I, and I, I'd like to casually hazard a guess that I think that that's because you know, I think he's just really obsessed with people liking him. And I'm, I'm thinking that he's a bit remiss to rock the boat. And people will say, well, he's rocked the boat with his cabinet. Yeah, but he's not willing to rock the boat with the with the powers that be, uh, I think, as far as the actual power players in this country, which is a lot of the very wealthy people. And he wants the public to like him. And so he doesn't want to take the risk of taking some really controversial positions. But the thing is, the facts are on your side. 
And so if you're a fighter and you're serious about doing what's right, you go out and you say, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to be a leader and I'm going to be tough and I know, and I have the facts on my side and I can prove it. Here's what we're going to do. That's a leader. Uh, I think what this sounds like is somebody asking for change instead of demanding it. And, and we need somebody to demand change, especially when they can prove their position with facts. Well, I think the the interesting thing, and I use that in quotes here about this declaration, is that actually um, there's a thinly veiled reference to the oil sands industry in there as being part of the solution. <laughs> and so not only have they not taken a definitive position on that, they're actually trying to reframe it as being part of the solution. And Trudeau has been quoted recently as saying that, you know, we're going to use that sector to build the, the new economy. And what I feel is that the government, in a way, given all the pressure around job loss um, in at West, they're kind of losing their nerve in a way, and they're feeling that they have to ride this middle ground, which is not an evidence-based middle ground, um, and it, it, it actually doesn't add up to supporting any sort of transition. I mean, if you look at it on face value, we have seen the phase out of major the major subsidies that we as the, the Canadian public were paying to oil and gas through, through government subsidization. However, there is still hidden subsidization and there's still a huge amount of political support, um, time and energy that goes into promoting the sector across the board, both domestically and internationally. So if the government continues at both, you know, provincial and federal levels to invest in that way, then they're actually sending the wrong signal. They're not sending the signal that they're actually going to undertake a transition. I, I don't think all the blame should be laid at the federal government's feet. I actually think they have taken the, the more, even though it's inadequate, the more progressive position here in these negotiations. I actually think that the many of the premiers are just as culpable. I think we're seeing we're seeing um, regionalism at its worst in terms of regional politics. I think the more conservative elements are actually playing this up to be some sort of national crisis. They're actually concocting it. And what we're seeing instead of, you know, provinces that are doing things that are positive or modeling good things like carbon tax, we're seeing more of this drive as like a race to the bottom in terms of, well, you know, if other provinces aren't getting on board with doing this, then, you know, we're losing our competitive edge. So maybe we want to rethink what we're doing as opposed to those provinces that are modeling better practices, lifting everybody up. Yeah. And I mean, one of the other news items uh, this week as well is that Canada is falling behind its uh, other countries and its renewable energy investments as well. And so, you know, let's come back to one of the other things. People say, well, well OK, well, what about jobs? You, you, you know, you arrogant environmentalists, you just don't care. You you want all of Alberta to go out. Of, you don't understand. Blah, blah, blah. OK, zip it. Here's the actual fact. If we wanted to if we were actually serious. If we were actually serious about this, here's what we would do. Very simple policy. We're going to go to the energy companies instead of saying, um, please, you know, don't block us trying to do some halfway good in climate policy and and we'll let you still have some pipelines and, and try and play middle ground and, and try and make everybody happy. Here's what you do. We're phasing out fossil fuel in Canada. This is not the basis of our economy anymore. It's not the basis of our economy anymore because it's going to tank us in the future and because it's not as good as the alternatives that we have today, which is renewables, which are better for our economy today. So here's what we're going to do, uh, Enbridge and all the other companies. We're going to work with you to phase out your current investments. And we're going to help you phase into new things. You still get to be giant, way too big to fail energy companies, but you're going to be you're going to base your business model around something else. So here's what we're going to do. Because all the skills of many of your workers are very similar to the same ones we need for renewable energy, we're going to pay dollar for dollar with you to retrain them. And this is going to change your business model. You guys are now going to be mass producers of renewable energy, and we're going to help pay for you to do it. 
we're going to get take a whole bunch of money. We're going to take all that oil subsidy money and we're going to say, great, you can still have that money, but 100% of it must be used to retrain your employees to shift your business model to a renewable energy. Don't like it? Then take your business elsewhere. The, and the reason we can do that is because we have a democratic country and we can change those rules. And the reason why it's not risky to do that is because we already know that these options are better. And so if your only option is, yeah, yeah, okay, climate change, but jobs, great. These jobs are better and we will help you create those jobs. I don't want a single Albertan to be out of work. I just want them to be working in a different industry. And if that means that me as a Canadian has to pay for them to be retrained, then I will do it. Well said. I think that actually, in terms of what you're saying, I don't think a lot of these corporations are that far off in their thinking in terms of what you're what you're saying. In fact, there's been an initiative struck up, um, and its name is escaping me right now, but we can certainly look it up and, and make it available to our listeners, um, where major major corporations have formed this group with different quote unquote stakeholders around supporting this transition to a clean economy. Now, of course. The, the major caveat is, again, they are pitching the oil sands industry as being part of, you know, part of this picture and, you know, getting our product to market. If I hear that that phrase used one more time, I'm going to I'm going to, you know, start jumping up and down and pulling my hair out. But going to start sounding like me. I, be, I better not say that because it's actually going to happen. But anyways, um, the point is that corporations are very much on board with the fact that they need to capitalize on this transition. They see it coming. In fact, the language that they're spewing, some of them, is, is more progressive than some of the premiers. And most uh, most of the corporations that are involved in these extractive and energy sectors are saying, yeah, put a price on carbon. It just needs to be fair. We like predictability, et cetera, et cetera. So they are figuring out a way to, ant- or anticipating a way to work a potentially a new system. Whether I'm not saying that that's to the advantage of the Canadian public, but I think it's interesting to look at more progressive language coming out of uh, corporate representatives than out of the premier, some of the premiers themselves. Yeah, and 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 I think you're absolutely right. And we're uh, we're we're a little bit over time for even this section. So let me make a final comment, and we'll go to our first music break here, and we'll get Alex on here. So my final comment again, and you know, some people are going to say, uh, you know, Darren's you know off the handle, and he's you know I I mostly agree, but he's going too far. Here here's why I'm frustrated, is because. You have articles like this one today uh, coming out. Trudeau says pipelines will pay for Canada's transition to a green economy. Not true. Well, okay, it could, um, but there are better ways. And like, so I want to see if they're serious. Let's come out and say, you know, let's have them coming out. Let's have the oil companies directly challenging the same uh, premiers that are trying to prop up their interest and saying, no, no, you're you're talking about us being inherent. We disagree. We agree that we have to change, and they need to be on the side of facts and, the, and and stop speaking out of both sides of their mouths and going and asking for all these favors and asking for all this stuff and asking for subsidies and asking for help and and supporting conservative politicians that are pushing for, you know, that are still talking about climate change being meth or promoting the idea that it's questionable or all these things and then coming out and saying it. And they need to be on our side and coming out and say, no, we agree. This is factually true. We need to change. We want your help because we want to stay in business and and speak with one mouth and, and, and stop sort of saying one thing in one situation and then pursuing policies in another. You know, we, we are not going to pay with our, the future with oil stuff. And to the extent that we are, we need to get out of it as fast as possible. And I need them saying it too. And I need them saying it to the folks that are pretending to support them, like Premier Bradwall, and saying, no, we disavow what Premier Bradwall is saying. He's wrong. And we need to work with people who actually know what's going on to help do this transition. And let's do this as a team building. I have nothing against these companies inherently. I just have a problem with what they're doing. And as soon as they get on side and they start saying factually true things, then I will be 100% in support of them. 
You're going to be waiting a while, Darren. I might be, but that's my challenge. Let's go to a music break. Alex is joining us here in the tech room, has been smiling fervently, and I don't know if that means I'm being insane or funny. But either way, Alex, what are we going to listen to, buddy? A little bit of both, Darren. Thank you. Um, yeah, t- uh, so for, for the first song today, we're going to listen to uh, a band called Maps, and they're from Barrie. They describe themselves as ambient, groovy, sensual, and enlightening. And uh, they're also friends of Sabina. So let's, uh, let's check out Maps. This is a song called Mediocrity. And we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, one of our wonderful radio community partners, possibly on the podcast. If that's the case, you're going to be hearing a uh, bonus show where we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, Arctic waters in industrial or exploration expanding as well. Uh, or you could be listening on one of our newest outlets, and very appreciate it as well, Rabble.ca, which is also carrying the show. And thanks very much to them as well. You can check us out there at Rabble.ca as well. Um, but uh, before we get into any more news, I have a little bit to say here about um, uh, Kevin O'Leary, friend of the show. Uh, But before we get there, I'm going to relate that. Uh, Emma had uh, one more news item for us. Take it away. Yeah, just to to wrap up this section on Canadian federal provincial politics. So one of the major news items in advance of this first minister's uh, meeting this week was the fact that the province of Quebec has launched a legal injunction against TransCanada around the Energy East pipeline. Uh, Quebec has been quite heavily criticized by some for doing it right before the uh, the premiers and PM met. Basically, what happened in a nutshell was that the province is saying that they sent correspondence to TransCanada ages ago, asking them to comply with their environmental protection laws and process, and they have not received a response to date. So they've decided that they need to escalate this and actually file a legal injunction in their provincial court system. There's been a whole, this is sort of the continuation of a long sort of region versus region saga, which I feel has actually been incited by some of the parties that be of, you know, mayors in Quebec originally saying that they were against the Energy East pipeline and then, you know, retaliation from people like Brad Wall and Nenshi out west. And now this has uh, happened right though the injunction has been launched right before the meeting. And there's a, a whole debate on whether pipelines are, are do, do like provinces have any jurisdiction over pipelines, which are which are a federal jurisdiction. The counter argument being that provinces actually do have legal standing in terms of they are a party, obviously, and their laws are impacted um, when pipelines run through physically run through their jurisdiction. So that was a big news item. I just wanted to cover that while we were talking about the whole uh, regional dynamic that's been happening in Canada. Well, uh, totally. And that uh, that brings us a little bit to uh, the thing I wanted to mention about uh, Kevin O'Leary. I don't uh, necessarily want to give the Toronto Sun any more traffic than it deserves, but recently it came across my news ticker, which is uh, uh, unlike Facebook, does not try and only send me things that it thinks I want to read, uh, which is why I use the news ticker instead of searching Facebook for news. Um, and because I like to see what sort of all sides are saying about something. So recently, I, one of the things that popped up on my news ticker was uh, was a, a, an article by written by Kevin O'Leary uh, called O'Leary. Leary calls out when I love it when people who think they're important refer to themselves in the third person. But anyway, um, <laughs> O'Leary calls out when an open letter. Well, yeah, okay, so we know where this is going. So within a couple sentences here, he's now calling uh, you know the cap and trade uh, one point nine billion dollar uh, uh, cap and trade fund a slush fund. 
Um, and he's, you know, very, it's done it in point form, which to, to me, you know, just says that he's a terrible writer because he can't write paragraphs. So he's just, he's literally written a point form article here. Uh, and he's demanding, he literally says, I will need a quarterly statement on flow funds in and out of the account, documenting blah, 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 blah. So he's just an arrogant clown. But so the reason is like, I don't even really want to go, go through what he was saying. There's just really just two points I wanted to point out about this. Uh, one of them was to, to come back to something that I, that I, you know, made it, made a big deal about a few shows ago. And, and I've been coming back to repeatedly, which is this entire nonsensical uh, setup that really only applies to low information voters. Um, And what I mean by low information voters is just that I'm not insulting people. And I'm not, I'm not conflating low information with people who disagree with me. I mean, people who are literally uninformed, people who just are not involved in politics, they don't understand climate science, they don't understand uh, politics, they don't follow it. And yet they still have strong opinions anyway, are the people that tend to like people like Kevin O'Leary. And Kevin O'Leary is, uh, you know, making a big thing about here about, you know, I'm a I'm an important businessman, and and I'm gonna keep it and you better send me because I'm so important. Uh, you better send me your quarterly statements uh, a little bit in here. And basically what he's just trying to do is he's trying to uh, simultaneously uh, trash win and trash the cap and trade system. So I want to say something about the attacks on Premier Wynn, and I want to say something about the cap and trade system. So the first thing is about uh, Premier Wynn, which is that um, something that he doesn't understand, I think, about the majority of young people today, which is that unlike his generation and most of the readers of the Toronto Sun, um, we it, this isn't a team. Right. If I disagree with Kevin O'Leary, that doesn't mean that I have uh, that I'm like absolutely in love with the liberals or Premier Wynn or Justin Trudeau or anybody else. I've been pretty hard on Justin Trudeau since before he was elected, since the beginning of the campaign. Uh, I've been trash talking him pretty much constantly. Uh, And I get a lot of flack from my progressive friends for that. so this this isn't about so this I, this entire idea that by trashing the premier and by by, you know, by trying to slander her um, that. You know, this this somehow makes the conservative position more valid because it doesn't. The second thing is is uh, that having to do with the actual uh, that fund was who is Kevin O'Leary? Well, the uh, National Observer recently did a really wonderful article, uh, which was uh, outlining a little bit about uh, Kevin O'Leary, who is an absolute failure of a business person. Kevin O'Leary is, uh, has had a number of businesses. Most of them had failed. Uh, the businesses that did temporarily do well did well because he got on TV as a blowhard. And he used his fame and his idea of being a dragon on Dragon's Den to uh, do operate some, uh, some financial funds, all of which have now collapsed. So Kevin O'Leary saved his career by going and being a bully on TV, which is where I'm going to make a comparison to Donald Trump here. And I'm not accusing uh, Kevin O'Leary of necessarily being a uh, a giant racist, although he might be. I am going to accuse him of being a narcissist because he clearly is. Um, but he's a fraud. He's a fraud as far as the the uh, the image that he puts out of being the tough businessman who's going to do stuff. Kevin O'Leary's uh, idea of business is that whatever you can get away with should be okay, that all regulation is bad. And Here's what I want to link to that. So we know he's a failure as a business person. So I just want to say something, that, and then we'll move on to what the substance here, and we'll get into the Detroit water crisis, which is that the most qualified thing, based on his history, for Kevin, the most qualified position for Kevin O'Leary to have is to play Lex Luthor in the next version of Superman. Okay? He's a TV blowhard. <laughs> he's really, really good at being arrogant. And people that are low-information voters take that confidence for competence. But those are two different 
things. Emmy wants to jump in. I do want to jump in because I actually uh, agreed with something that he said in this <laughs> op-ed. And, you know, it's it's an interesting week because I agreed with one thing he said. And then I also agreed with a bunch of stuff that Mitt Romney said. So that never happens. But anyways, um, the one thing I do want to say that I agreed with in this op-ed is that he was requesting or demanding regular reports um, on whether the cap and trade system is actually reducing carbon emissions. And I would also like to see that, too, because I, I do have some questions as to whether whether Ontario has adopted the best mechanism, but that oh, no, is, sure, absolutely. That may—that's neither here nor there in terms of uh, Kevin O'Leary's. Uh, well, it, it is actually—it is actually both yeah. here and credibility. There. It is actually both here and there because uh, Kevin O'Leary, if we were to do the same thing to any of his businesses, and he was too transparent, everyone would know what a giant fraud he is. Right. Right. So great. Oh, Kevin O'Leary, we'll give you that information as soon as you publish all the information about yourself. Not going to happen. Uh, so, so there's that. And then the other thing as well is that, yes, I think that's really the important thing here and the, and the, and the, the thing. So Kevin O'Leary is a blowhard. We all know that. Uh, he's not qualified to have an opinion on anything other than what color of, color of rocks are his favorite. That's about the most qualified thing he's qualified for other than playing a bad guy in a movie. But what is legitimate and, and this is the part that confuses low information voters was that, yes, there are problems in government. Government is not always perfect, but being the loudest, most obnoxious critic of the current government and suggesting that we should the, – the solution for imperfect government is no government is madness. And um, while there may be occasionally valid criticisms, we can have a legitimate discussion and we can say, yes, this point is good and this point is bad. We need to be having a factual discussion. And if, and if your idea of, you know, I'm going to vote or I think Kevin O'Leary is right because I also have some criticisms of Catherine Wynne, you are a low information voter and you need to go and do some research. And I'm not calling you an idiot uh, unless you willfully don't go and read those articles and still hold that opinion. And then I am. Um, but where we're going to – we'll do the last thing here, which is that I wanted to compare this to the Flint uh, water crisis. So what was happening uh, there as well was that uh, the, you know, there's – I'm going to post a bunch of videos. You can – as usual, you can go and see all these uh, this stuff for yourself on the website. We have full transparency unlike Kevin O'Leary. Um, you can go and do all this reading for yourself. You can go and find other articles. And if you think you found something and disagrees with something we've said, then by all means, send it to us. And we're honest enough that we will uh, we will put that on the air as long as it's credible. Uh, but what happened was that we had a, a, a guy in Detroit, the uh, – um, sorry, I'm blanking on his name. Can you help me uh, – off the top of your head, I'll see if I can pull it up here. Sorry, I'm blanking on the on the name there. But in in you Detroit, the, you're talking about the politician. Yeah, yeah. I'm just uh, I have nine million uh, articles in front of me. Ah, Snyder. Uh, so what happened was he went and gave billion dollars worth of tax breaks to a bunch of corporations, and then turned around and said that we don't have enough money to pay for good water. Uh, so this what he's like. Well, we needed to make up. We don't have the the you know nine hundred million dollars. Well, you just finished giving it away to all your corporate buddies. Right. So this is where I wanted to talk about the dangerousness of, of ideas like the types of things that Kevin O'Leary here is promoting in Canada as well. Because when we deregulate corporations, yeah, there might be a slow increase, uh, decrease in prices for services. And so the opposite would be in the argument that people would make is, oh, hey, if you uh, regulate us, prices will go up. Yeah. But you know what happens? There's this thing called full cost accounting, right? Where uh, if all your jobs are gone and you, everyone now uh, – your business is put out of business and you're an entrepreneur and you're put out of business and, and uh, because of Walmart and now you're going to go work for Walmart for $9 an hour, um, you might save a dollar on a bar of you – know, on a case of soap or you know, a few cents on some chickens because those industries now don't have to regulate. But you now have no money to buy them with. So your relative uh, worth goes down, right? So in this case, he's like, look, I lower taxes in Flint. 
Uh, great. Who'd you lower them for? My mil- multi-million dollar buddies. Great. Okay, so what did we get out of it? Well, now your water is literally poison and literally killing people. So again, please, before you go and tell me that regulation is uh, bad and so is government and all these things, you have to actually do some homework. Uh, and the math shows when you're going to do something like that, you have to look at it. Deregulating uh, companies are is not the solution. And if you're going to say that it is, I'm going to want some math and not just this fervent kind of repeating this line about, you know, corporations trickles down, trickles down, trickles down, because it does trickle down, but we know it's not money that trickles down. And that's the final comment I want to make about that. Uh, any uh, closing statement from you on that, Emmy? No, I think you got that covered. <laughs> All right. So we're actually perfectly on time for a second and final break. We have uh, Clark Barr, who has been sitting patiently in the studio t- uh, today as well. He's going to be our final feature today, and he's going to be talking a little bit about life without plastic. So I'm actually going to stop ranting like a crazy person shortly after the break. Well, probably mostly. Um, and we'll be right back. But before we go to our second and final music break, Alex is going to jump in once again. What are we going to listen to, man? Thanks, Darren. Uh, so this song is by a band called Winter Sleep. Uh, I played them on the show a couple weeks ago, but they are just celebrating the release of their new album today. And they're also in town playing at Lee's Palace tonight. Um, but if you don't have tickets, they're already sold out. So uh, just enjoy the song for now. This is Territory by Winter Sleep. All right, we're back listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5. I'm your host, Darren Kaster, and uh, you might be listening on uh, live radio. You could be listening on uh, rabble.ca, which is one of our new distribution partners. You could be listening on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community radio partners all the way across the country and now in the United States as well. Or you could be listening on the podcast on our site. And if you're doing that, we'll be uh, after the show in the bonus show that does not go to the radio but is on the podcast version found on our site. Uh, Sabina will be joining us, one of our other volunteers and we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, climate change, opening uh, sensitive Arctic waters to industrial exploitation. Um, what are some of the uh, the risks of that? How serious a problem is it? And and what is uh, basically what's going on with that? What's up with that? Uh, as well, I also just want to let people know as well. Um, I've mentioned this. Uh, I, I generally like to mention this that we do uh, we do actually quite a, we cast quite a big net when we're looking for news stories as well, which means that there's never ever been a single show when we've gotten to every single thing that I would like to talk about. Uh, so we might get to a little bit about Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, um, speech from the Oscars there in the bonus show as well but also just to let people know some of the other articles that we so we post all these news items on the website so if you're just wondering like if you just want to sort of skim through or even if you don't have time to listen to the whole show but you just kind of want to skim all the news for yourself just go to the greenmajority.ca slash podcast or there's a big button when you just go to greenmajority.ca and on the show post for each week we do list all the news stories both the ones we cover and the ones we don't so just really quickly before we go to uh, Clark Barr for our special feature on life without plastic I'm going to let people know some of the other news items they'll be able to find on the website this week is uh, Mercury Blighted Community of Grassy Narrows is taking its case to the UN. IKEA is to use mushroom-based packaging that will decompose in gardens within weeks and replace largely styrofoam and many other packing materials. Uh, Tax loopholes for the rich cost Canada $16 billion a year. Uh, Big oil wants taxpayer cash for risky Arctic drilling. Backroom lobby uh, blitz to uh, drill in the Arctic. Uh, again, more information about the Flint emails and, of course, a little feature on Brad Wall, which I'll probably save for when we go after him in a couple of weeks as well. Uh, but all sorts of news, that and more I didn't even get to. You'll find that on the website. But without further ado, I would like now to introduce Clark Barr, who is uh, going to be joining us like some of other, like uh, Rich Penny did a few weeks ago, going to be joining us once in a uh, once in a while whenever, uh, whenever we have time to do a special report. And so, Clark's this is Clark's first appearance on the show. I want to welcome you to the show. And uh, if you would please uh, introduce your topic and, and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself. 
Yeah, thanks a lot, Darren. Um, just to give you a little background about myself, I guess I was uh, born and raised in rural Saskatchewan, so when you speak about Broadwall, I'm very fluent in those issues. Um, I grew up, uh, I spent a lot of time outdoors, hunting, fishing, being outdoors, and I guess that kind of carried on into my life later on. Uh, my adult life, I spent a lot of time outdoors. I'm big into trekking, uh, camping. I go on sometimes pretty big, pretty big hikes, five days plus. Um, and I guess that ties into my topic pretty well because oftentimes when I'm out on these big hikes, I'm walking through this pristine, beautiful forest. I think I'm so far from anywhere. Um, I think maybe sometimes I'm, I'm the first person who's ever been here. And you get these really romantic feelings like, I could be the first person ever in this exact spot. And then you look over to your left, you look over to your right, and you might see a, a chocolate bar wrapper or a pop bottle. And you're just like, oh, God, how did these things get out here? And it just really told me, you know, plastic is everywhere in the planet. You, you really can't escape it. You go anywhere, you're going to see plastic. Um, and that's when kind of my inspiration, how I guess I got started on the idea of having a plastic-free year. Um, so that pop bottle, yes, I might pick it up and put it in my thing because that pop bottle could be there for thousands of years. There could be people going out in that same forest and seeing it because it just doesn't break down. Um, so I started doing a little reading last year and, and doing a little research, and I found some disturbing things. Uh, for instance, they say by 2050, there could actually be more plastic in the ocean than there are fish. Um, so this is where our plastic is going. Uh, that's frightening. Um, also, you know, just thinking about plastic in my life, and, and I've used a plastic knife. Let's say 15 years ago, I was at my friend's birthday party, and I used a plastic knife. Of course, I don't think of it anymore, but it's still here. It's somewhere on this planet um, because actually almost any plastic that has been created since the beginning of time is still in existence. It's still here somewhere. Um, we never think about it because we, we throw it out, a garbage truck comes and gets it, goes somewhere else, and we, we just never think about it. But it's still here. So I started to take a look at my life and see where I was using plastic and, and ways that I could cut it out. And it actually, it's, you never think of it, but it's actually everywhere. I took a, a walk through a department store the other day and I was just looking around at how many things were, were plastic free there. Not much. You know, they either contain plastic in the, the thing itself or in the packaging. Um, so I identified the ways, um, that I could cut it out. So for instance, clothing, a lot of us people, a lot of people just assume it's made from cotton, it's made from wool, but actually most of it now contains polyester. That's plastic. So long after you're done with that t-shirt, um, it, it's still going to be here. Um, long after maybe you're done wearing t-shirts altogether, actually. Um, so uh, I've, I haven't had to buy any t-shirts. I started my project in, uh, in January 1st, so I just haven't bought anything yet. But um, when I do, I'm going to look for uh, items that don't contain plastic, also uh, using secondhand items. Uh, food, uh, almost all food now is, is, is either wrapped in plastic or has a plastic container that it comes in. 
And um, this has been the real difficult one for me because, you know, we've grown accustomed to having so many different flavors, so many different uh, different thing, foods from all around the world. And it, it, that one has been difficult. Uh, I have some reusable uh, produce bags that I use to get all my produce now, and the rest I, of things I buy in bulk. So I found a store where I can take my own containers in, fill them up, uh, use them at home, and then take the containers back and fill them up. Um, but yeah, generally food's been the hardest one. I'd, I'd liken it to like a, a vegetarian who, um, somebody who's just decided to be a vegetarian and they smell bacon for the first time. And it's like, oh, I really want that, that bacon, but I can't have it because I'm a vegetarian now. It's the same for me. I have the same feelings. Like I see things in stores and I'm like, I want that, but I can't have it. Um, so that one's been difficult. Hygiene products, um, shampoos, body wash, toothpaste, these always all come packed in plastic. Um, they're making you beautiful, but they might be leaving the planet a bit uglier. Uh, so I actually went online and found that you can make most of these things yourself. And I found recipes that are really easy. You know, shampoo might have 30 ingredients, but I found that I'm able to make it with five and all good things that, that are planet-friendly and don't come in a plastic package. Uh, general consumer goods, basically everything comes made of plastic or wrapped in plastic. Um, if you think like a toaster oven, spatulas, power tools, shoes, toilet brushes, microwaves, cars, they're all plastic full. Um, what I've realized is that generally I don't need many of these things. And this being qualified with the fact that I started out with most of them, so I didn't throw out my toaster because I'm plastic free. Um, but once, once these things do break, I'm going to revisit and see whether I actually need that thing. Um, because a lot of times I don't think I probably actually do need those things. Um, and in other cases, maybe there's a plastic free alternative. So something that's biodegradable that won't be here long after I'm gone. Um, so that's actually been a good side effect is like I'm just consuming less. So I have more money to spend on things that are actually important to me than than buying plastic items. Um, major epiphanies I've had is that, you know, after saying all this, despite my best efforts, it's really difficult to cut plastic out completely. So don't take that as like, oh, this is too hard. But um, I'm going to give you an example, like medication always comes in plastic. And so if you're a diabetic and your insulin comes in plastic, of course, you're going to continue taking uh, your insulin. Um, I'm a biker, which I generally think is pretty sustainable. Uh, I bike everywhere, but good luck trying to find a bicycle helmet that isn't made with plastic. So you kind of have to uh, bite your lip and, and bear it for some of these items. But um, generally, you know, you can't make your, your life a living hell by not having plastic. But, you know, you try your best. Uh, the other epiphany is that this isn't really an issue that a lot of people are thinking about. So as I discuss it with people, they're going, oh, okay, like, this is cool. I've never heard of this. This is interesting. Um, you also get a lot of people like, oh, well, I'm not using, uh, I'm not, I'm using reusable grocery bags now, which probably are also made of plastic. Um, but that's their contribution. But they never go this step further and they never think, oh, well, what about that peanut butter that comes in a plastic container? Um, what about the apples that I put in a plastic bag to put into my reusable grocery bag? So it's been really interesting to extend the conversation beyond. 
Um, and just a general conclusion is that every time we, we buy something and if it's in excess packaging or it uses plastic when it didn't need to be, we're actually telling the, the producer of that product, like, yeah, we really agree with what you've, you've put out here. Thanks a lot. Um, so we vote with what we buy and, and we continue to buy a lot of plastic, excess plastic items. Um, we're telling them that we agree with that. Uh, and lastly, I would just like to say, you know, all of these things, eating more fruits, more vegetables, um, also uh, spending more free time outdoors, making things myself, these are all healthy things. So I found that having plastic out of my life is actually just generally good for my health. That's really cool. Awesome. Yeah. I, I was thinking about a, a couple of things. I don't know. Uh, are we good to jump in with a few things here? Yeah. Okay. Um, so one of the things I was thinking about when you were, when you were talking about that, first of all, thank you very much. Uh, that was a, a really interesting story. And I was, it, it was giving me a lot of visuals while I was listening to you, Clark, as well. Uh, one of the things that, that popped up at the very end uh, for me was the, the, the last thing that I referenced there was the Ikea story there about how they're doing uh, packaging out of mushroom fiber uh, and stuff like that. And, and w I mean, one of the realities about plastic was that you know, salt is an alternative. Uh, there's really not a lot we can do to eliminate it from our life. As you said, it is just so unbelievably ubiquitous uh, that there are just there. There are a lot of cases where there just isn't an alternative, right? And like you were saying, a really good example there was the medication cases, right? Um, you know, you could make it out of stone or glass or something else, but there's a lot of reasons not to, right? Like there's it wouldn't it would be unsafe for them to be in glass, and there would so I mean, plastic is an part of the reason it's so ubiquitous is because it is genuinely an incredibly useful invention. Um, and and sort of the point I wanted to make about that, and then maybe you can you can tell me your thoughts or, or Emma can jump in about this, was that the example there and a lot of the time, you know, when people will say uh, there's a bad, right? When environment, quote unquote, you know, loosely saying environmentalists say there's a bad thing. We, we should not have this thing or this thing has some serious downsides. We need to think about the downsides to this thing. The opposition will be the, generally the, the knee jerk opposition to that will be, well, what are we supposed to do without it? Right. And we could talk about oil in this case. Like, what are we supposed to do without oil? But it's so useful. And we blah, 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 plastic and other things. Well, what are we going to do? We can't replace everything. Well, and, and sort of my solution to that, it was, a, yes, well, that's why, you know, we need to, but those same people will also say, well, we shouldn't have any regulation, but that's, that's really constructive regulation that actually helps economies, right? Is by stimulating it. The, the, the people that are really against regulation are not new and innovative companies that are doing really new and innovative things. It's the entrenched companies that don't want to have to do things differently because they make a lot of money on the status quo. And usually the reason they're making so much money off something that's bad is that there's no cost negative for them of the bad doing business, right? So they'll prevent, uh, for instance, full cost accounting, right? Oil companies don't want to pay for the pollution that gets pumped into the, into the climate. So what we're talking about when we're talking about regulation, when we're talking about fixing these problems, you're not talking about, you know, uh, just, you know, arbitrarily passing a law that immediately bans all plastic, because I actually agree that would be disastrous for the economy, right? But what we need to be doing is we need to be passing laws where we say, hey, we need to be fine. We're going to put a giant incentive for a replacement to plastic. We, we need a material. We need to put it in research, and we need to start today to find environmentally sustainable replacements for these services, because, yes, they're useful, but that's why we start now we we start before we're in the situation we are with the climate where it's now too late and we're now in a desperate scramble well you guys have been blocking us for 40 years if we'd started when we suggest we started we might have actually had a useful alternative by now yeah um and i agree with a lot of those points darren like uh, plastic is an incredible material and and part of what makes it incredible is it doesn't break down so if you need uh, a new hip for instance you get a hip replacement 
part of that part contains plastic, and I'm all for that. Um, but what what I also found was like if you just trust it to corporations, they give no care at all to any consideration about the environment. So, for instance, microbeads, which are in a lot of uh, products now, are just they're all the the water treatment plants aren't able to handle microbeads. They all go into the lakes. They all go into the rivers. They're collecting. Um, do these products all need microbeads? They actually don't have a lot of use. I know the answer. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> uh, sorry, Emmy wants to jump in. Oh, I didn't. I didn't want to jump in too soon, but I think that's a really good example around. We are actually at risk of ingesting really large amounts of of plastics, and also there's a sort of exploratory area of, of health research, which I, think, which I think is just emerging right now, to looking at endocrine disruption. So basically looking at, for example, say I take a plastic container full of food and I heat it in my right microwave, and there's some sort of contamination of that food by the plastic that container that contains it. What are What is the long-term health impact or a shorter-term health impact of us ingesting um, plastic-related substances? So we, again, it's one of these examples where we go and do things as human beings that may be highly detrimental to our own health. Clark's probably going to live longer than the rest of us if he's moving off plastics. Um, and we don't fully understand the the consequences of doing that. We did live without it before. We did use glass containers, and a lot of us are going back to those things. So there's some things that are hard to replace, but it's also shifting our mindset and saying, you know, just because we're used to something doesn't mean we really need it. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a really interesting point. I've, uh, as somebody who travels a lot, I've gone to a lot of countries. Um, some of these societies existed for thousands of years without plastic. And in the last 10 years, they've had plastic products introduced to them. And you see it everywhere in the streets. And people say, oh, they don't care. Or, you know, they're throwing the garbage out. They just actually don't have the systems to process it. They don't have the, the waste refuse systems. And um, you're seeing it in the streets. So uh, I love that point that, yeah, we existed for a long time without plastics. We can do it. Yeah, and I think I, I think the moral of the story here, or, or at least to recap what the moral story was for me, was that you know we need to be we need to be planning out beyond to anticipate problems before we do them. You know, there are some downsides to plastic. There's some really amazing upsides. There's also downsides to oil, and there's some really amazing upsides. Um, but we need to acknowledge, okay, here's some upsides. There's some downsides. The downsides long term outweigh the upsides. So let's plan to move away from it. Right. And that's the thing we're saying. We're not saying everybody go out and never use plastic tomorrow. What we're saying is stop actively blocking people trying to in uh, create incentives in an economic system for a new company to make lots and lots of money. Yay, capitalism off benefiting something that doesn't poison us all. Right. That's what we're saying. Or at least that's what I'm saying. Right. Is that the, there is a way to blend, you know, what most people would recognize as as traditional capitalism that also is takes advantage of some things that we know about reality, which was stop pretending the downsides don't exist. And just because you don't have it, you're, you're preventing putting a cost on the bad. And because there's no cost, it doesn't exist functionally in the market. So we're not saying throw everything out and let's all go back to the Stone Age. We're saying let's introduce those costs and let the market sort it out. Poisoning people should be very expensive. And if it was, we'd have a very huge thing and a new different, you know, maybe some companies would go away and some new companies would come up and they would be giant corporations with multinational outlets and all over. And maybe we'd be concerned about uh, big mushrooms packing, you know, uh, influencing lobbyists in, in Washington. You know, that would be a much preferable uh, problem to have, in my opinion. But it's not it's it's not 
status quo versus Stone Age. And, and that's my biggest, biggest knee-jerk here is that there's a way to have both. I think there is a way to have your cake and eat it too, but it involves uh, an uninformed people getting out of the way, I think. That's, and that'll be – I just couldn't resist throwing that in there at the end. That's my final comment. We've got, oh, 10 seconds. So you'll have to wait for final comments for everybody else on the bonus show. Uh, thank you very much for listening to The Green Majority. If you are listening on the podcast off greenmajority.ca, you can, uh, we'll be right back with Sabina who's going to be talking about Arctic water exploration. But other than that, that's all the time we have for. So have a good green week, folks, and we'll talk to you all real soon. Thank you so much to Clark and M.A. for joining me today. See you all real soon. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Green Majority Podcast. We're about to get into the bonus show here as well, where Sabina is going to lead us into discussion about some news about the thawing Arctic and increasing commercial traffic through these now terrifyingly melted waters. Just a quick reminder that if you're willing and able, we would love it if you could help support us and help us get our message out there to a wider audience. You can do that at patron.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash greenmajority, or go to greenmajority.ca and look for the how you can help button. If you enjoy listening to the show, but don't think we're quite something yet that you wish to support, well then maybe consider sending us an email and letting us know what we could do to improve so that we could get your support. Other than that, please enjoy the bonus show. And welcome to the bonus show. Thank you very much for listening to the regular show. We now have the uh, the pleasure of being joined once again by Sabina. Sabina, who's uh, I don't I don't want to call you an intern. We need to come up with a really cool title for you. What do you want your title to be, Sabina? Intern. <laughs> for now. All right. Really cool. That's le- not legally accurate. <laughs> You're, you have scare quotes, intern. All right, but uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about Arctic water exploration. You had chosen this news article as one that you would like to feature in the bonus show this week, so I will give it to you now to introduce the topic, and then we'll break out for discussion. Uh, thank you, Darren. I'm really interested in this topic, actually. It was just an article on the National Observer. It was titled, Climate Change Opens Sensitive Arctic Waters to Industrial Exploitation. And it is exactly what it sounds like. So the Arctic Ocean has been subject to exploitation by industrial fishing companies in the past three years because of climate change. Greenpeace recently has been studying the ship movements in a pro- portion of the Norwegian Barents Sea, concluding that a large number of fishing vessels from international companies are now moving into previously untouched, pristine, ice-covered areas. The true problem, however, is the trend that we're now seeing that is not only in the Arctic, but also in Canada's East Coast and Russia, where companies are moving into previously untouched waters and uh, degrading the environment in those areas. The region's rich cod stocks, which are currently the world's largest, are of high interest to industrial fishers. And this, to me, is oddly reminiscent of the first European settlers when they started to exploit the fishing industry in North America. However, the difference between then and now is that the technology that we have now can catch thousands of tons of fish per day, whereas back then it took them at least 100 years to degrade our environment. So the ecosystem in these areas is extremely fragile, and it supports bowhead whales, walruses, polar bears, and rare fish and invertebrates, which can all be disrupted by the large trawl nets that industrial fishers use that are weighed down with heavy metal rollers, and they crush everything in its path from the sediment to the largest species. So the large ships do not only disrupt their pristine waters, but but also the way of life of aboriginal communities in those areas. With climate change thawing the water, 
waters, a lot of the trade routes will be open in the Arctic. Mainly the Northwest Passage will also be open, which increases ecotourism and it increases trade, but it will also disrupt the environment and many people's way of life. And this will be a large risk to pollution and spills in these areas if they become subject to trade between different countries. So at the moment, a precedent for a moratorium does exist in the Arctic waters in Alaska, which prohibits any activities until there's enough information as to how fisheries can be managed and impact, and the impact is assessed. However, it's a great beginning. However, it's vitally important that the companies do not increase industrial activities in these highly fragile areas because it begins a positive feedback loop, which increases pollution, increases climate change, and then further increases melting ice, then more exploitation, and then more destructive climate change. So it's really important that we take that precautionary approach and a scientifically based approach when when you know targeting these industrial industrial fisheries and these sensitive areas um yeah i think it's uh really interesting sabina i guess it just goes you know companies are notoriously short-sighted so they look and they can go in and get all these new fish stocks but they don't generally think about the long term so yeah i can go in and get all this cod right now and that's exactly what happened in newfoundland um, you know, some years ago where we had to shut down the cod fishery all of a sudden. So is there a plan to make it sustainable? Um, maybe we can take some fish from the Arctic. Maybe it is possible to do that sustainably. But right now we just don't know, do we? Yeah. Exactly. And and we really don't know. And what what is what has been happening is that a lot of the fish that we do that we do exploit has started to go into the north because of climate change. The top of the ocean water has started to heat up and a lot of the fish that live in these areas, it's not their natural ecosystem anymore. Therefore, they've started to go more north in order to get closer to their natural habitat. And now all of these industrial fisheries are going to the north with them because of climate change. So it's really important to see how how not only is it affecting it from the point of view of how we talk about it every day in terms of ecosystem, but also in how like exploitation will continue. And it's really important to, you know, look at that and research that. Yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to, I mean, this was, Clark put his finger on it in a sense that they're not long term. I would, I would go farther and say that they're actually incentivized not to. Right. So, I mean, what it, what is a corporation? A corporation is a legal entity that has a, a legal responsibility to maximize profit and does not have a legal responsibility to manage its resource. Uh, it might if it was, um, you know, really thinking about the future. And I think that's what you're getting to is that they, they should have an incentive to want to make sure that they manage their resources. But the, the thing that overcompensates for that in our uh, uh economic system is the what the quote unquote tragedy of the commons, which is that if I don't fish it, someone else will. Um, the way that we would normally try and rein this in would be some sort of, you know, international cooperation to protect a resource. And, and generally, these are not nearly as strong as the business interests to maximize that resource. Uh, and so we end up in that situation. And the, the sort of last thing I want to say on, on, on this about it, you know, at the risk of going into another long diatribe about corporation and corporate structure, um, is simply the idea that is that uh, my disagreement with the word tragedy in tragedy of the commons because that's a very classic economics term but the word tragedy there is implies very strongly that no one's to, at fault uh, a tragedy is something that that implies that it could not have been how could we have known it's such a tragedy right if somebody goes in and shoots somebody we don't call that a, a tragedy we call that murder right a tragedy generally speaking is used for a situation like you know an accident right and this isn't an accident 
So, you know, we have a system where we, there's a demonstrable harm uh, and we are simply not enforcing what we know to be factually true. And it's because everyone says, well, my hands are tied. What do you want me to do? Um, there is something we can do about it. Uh, it does not very easy under the current system. But like, let's at least be honest and not pretend that this is an accident or a tragedy or something that couldn't be uh, avoided. It is a simply a product of when you have corporations that are more powerful than, than governments. It's, re- it's that simple. I just want to add, though, that in terms of Arctic exploitation, we've got all these countries preparing themselves to stake a claim in the increasingly exposed Arctic. So I I wouldn't in this case necessarily say that uh, these private interests are any better or worse than what we're seeing the state interests doing. What the state interest should be doing, because like you've rightly pointed out, Darren, that, you know, corporations, at least we know, have this very strong mandate from their shareholders, if you want to put it that way, to make profit. So they will ruggedly pursue that. State actors, on the other hand, should be pursuing the public interest. Well, their interpretation of the public interest is to go stake their claim on potential resources that will be emerging because of climate change, because of mass melting. And Canada is one of those countries. So if those are the the parties, if those states are the parties that we would be counting on to rein in these private interests that are exploiting the fishing stocks, for as an example, then we're in a whole lot of trouble. Yeah, and it's I mean, and what it comes down to when we're talking about you know the the machinery of a corporation is that they're you know they are very efficient at uh, creating efficiencies, but they they're machines, right? And they're machines at creating efficiency, but you can it's a machine like a computer program that creates efficiency only on what you program into it. So, for instance, if we decided to take a computer program, we programmed into it, um, let's create uh, – what is the most cost-effective way to create sustainability on planet Earth and pressed enter and gave it no further information? One of the likely scenarios it would come up with would be, okay, get rid of all humans. You're like, oh, no, no, no. Okay, create sustainability that doesn't involve wiping out the biggest polluter on the planet. It would come out to a different conclusion, right? But that's that's what we're doing. We have, a, we have corporations who are maximizing efficiency with the inputs that they've been given and the machinery in the, uh, that they've been given. And one of the inputs that they are not required to consider when maximizing efficiency is long-term sustainability of the resource that they're mining, right? And so that's where it's, a, it's not an issue of like corporations being good or evil. It, they're machinery. They're computer programs. And they operate on the inputs that we've been given them. And protecting the long-term interests, even of itself, is simply not something that's factored in in most cases. I actually have an an anecdote about that that we talked about in one of my sustainability classes, and it's from the show Undercover Boss. And this boss has this large, uh, large company where they ship, like, birthday birthday packages and they were looking at this one lady that had the lowest efficiency rating and the boss goes in and he sees why she had the lowest efficiency rating is because she was taking the most care in making the perfect packages and writing really nice letters to the people that the packages were going to and the other people were very efficient they were just throwing things into the box and just being super efficient and on paper they looked amazing but it was actually the lady that kept bringing them back that that uh, that more work and more because of her care and not her efficiency. So I think when you really take in, into account, like a company, a company should actually care about efficiency, but it should also be long term care and really like Im- importance in doing well what you're doing rather than just being really quick about it. Yeah, or or at least factor customer care into the definition of efficiency, right? Which yeah. is sort of what I was saying. Yeah. yeah, but it's 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 understanding what the limitations of these these things are and that. You know, just being like, well, these guys can produce the product for $2 cheaper. You should ask why it's cheaper. Mm-hmm. 
which I think comes back to plastic a little bit. I don't know if you wanted to, to re, 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 redirect back to that at all, Clark. But. Yeah, well, one of the things I was going to say also, and I don't want to open up a whole other can of worms, but, you know, Emma was mentioning about uh, state actors, and I just think, like, a lot of the times the state actors are aligned with the companies because they are also very short-term sighted. Um, they get elected every four years, so they don't ha- exactly have to think long-term either. So um, we're relying on people who are only caring about the next four years to make decisions about our, our future uh, 30, 40, 50 years out. And, you know, it's just an imperfect system. That's why we need people like us to stand up and, and work for, for what we believe in. Yeah, and that's my final comment, and then hopefully um, we'll let Sabina close it out, and I don't don't know if MA will want to make any sort of closing comment or whatever, but... um that's sort of my thing was that, you know, I, I, I could understand if anyone would listen to me, especially on today's show, and confuse what, what my point of view is that saying that, you know, people who work for corporations are evil or that corporations themselves are evil or that governments are evil. No, they're people and people are flawed and people are doing the best within the system that we've created. My, my attack is on the system and that my and the people I dislike and I and I and I find objectionable like Kevin O'Leary are people who are actively either aware or willfully ignorant of the problems in the system and defend the existing system despite its flaws i don't care about those people i don't think any of them are evil but we need their cooperation in, in at least admitting that the system itself is broken and stop relying on it well saying that hey the system says we're operating at perfect efficiency yeah but your system sucks and that's my point and and we just want to close on that this isn't a, a personal hate game it's not that i have a personal bias against corporations it's that i have an awareness of the fact that the system in which they operate is broken and critically and f- perhaps fatally flawed and that'll be my closing thought. Um, anyone else want to jump in? Or Sabina, do you want to recap? I think, uh, well, the I just wanted to say that the, I'm happy that we talked about that whole fact of the short-term thinking. Because I think one of the main reasons why the system is flawed is due to short-term thinking. And if we really want to achieve sustainability, it's long-term thinking all the way. So I really hope that if we can drive that home for everybody, then that would be the best thing to take, take away from from this, yeah, so, and we're you. actually going to be uh, revisited by as the uh, Kevin Farmer is uh, taking has has a day off, and he's going to be joining us again soon. So I'm, I'll uh, close out the bonus show with a reference to one of his favorite lines, which is sustainability is inevitable. It's just whether or not we're included in the final equation that's uh, that's really up for grabs. Exactly. So there we go. We'll close on that. Thanks so much for joining us in the bonus show, and thank you too much uh, for Sabina and Emma and Clark and Alex for joining us on today's show. I had a really fun show, and we'll see everybody next week. Other than that, take care. <laughs>